through your life into the life of your children so that when one day someone tells them, you know, God... For the past several weeks, we have been looking at the concept of following Christ, of being his disciple, that to be a follower of Jesus means to go where he goes, to be found where he is found, to speak as he speaks, do as he does. Uh, We also suggested that uh, to follow Jesus means to sell everything, to give it away, to have only one treasure in the heart, and that is Jesus Christ, uh, to value nothing other than to know Christ. We also last week suggested that following Jesus requires courage, loyalty, and trust as we looked at the Apostle Thomas. Now this morning I would like to continue our thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and look at the notion of what difference does it make. It would make sense that if you have encountered the Son of God, if you have fallen in love with the Savior of a lost humanity, if you have aligned your life with the Creator of the universe, that life ought to be a little bit different. There should be some discernible transformation in the life of the person who comes to Christ. And that's what I want to look at uh, this morning. That in fact, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Well, what is the newness? What is the difference that being a disciple of Jesus Christ makes? Now, to be sure, a large portion of the New Testament is taken up with describing this difference. You know that Paul in his letters has the normal pattern of first presenting the teaching, the doctrine about Christ, and then in the latter part of a letter he goes on to say, and here's what that means. Here's the transformation that should take place in your life as a result of that truth that I've just been talking about. And so in Colossians he will say, set your mind, your heart, and your affection on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And in Philippians he will say, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians he will say, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so throughout the letters he has this calling, this summoning and invitation of believers in Jesus to come and have their lives transformed by the act of following Christ. As we have said before, it is not a matter of extracting a few principles out of the Bible, a few principles and ideas to apply to our lives. It is rather coming to know a person and to have a living fellowship relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what I want for us to think about this morning. The transformation that takes place when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, it will sound like, in a moment, it will sound like I'm preaching on Christian marriage. And then it will sound like I'm preaching on the Christian family. And then it will sound like I'm preaching on Christian employment. Uh, Certainly we could have that kind of sermon. It would look a little different than what we're doing 
this morning. But um, what we're looking at is by way of illustration. That's what I want for us to keep in mind. Uh, it's not just, oh, I want to know how to have a happy marriage. Uh, you'll know that in about 30 minutes. But uh, it, it is rather, I want to know how the Lord Jesus Christ makes a difference in my marriage. What is the difference that he makes? So that's what we're looking at, the transformation of the power of Christ in following him. And so by way of illustration, we look at Ephesians 5:22 through 6:9. We start at 5.22, where Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Already a little bit of bristling is going on. Already there's a little bit of what in the world is he talking about? Is he still stuck in the Middle Ages somewhere? How is it possible that anybody who has made his way through the 20th century and into the 21st century could still have such an antiquated idea about women, wives, being submissive to their husbands? Doesn't he know about women's liberation? Is he still a believer in male chauvinism? Is he so tied to some kind of a male-dominated society that he can't imagine the fact that women are actually human beings in their own right with, with minds? and understanding and capabilities and talents and something to offer to the world? Is this guy nuts? And the answer is well, probably in the, in the eyes of the world because it doesn't make sense to the world. The world is fighting like crazy, especially in our society, to do away with this notion that is here in the scripture about a Christian marriage. We read, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is offensive until you know Jesus Christ. Because then that phrase, as to the Lord, takes on a whole new meaning. Wives, submit to your husbands as an act of worship to Jesus Christ in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ that he is absolute sovereign over your life in the context of the difference Jesus makes as the Lord of your life. Bring a submissive spirit to your marriage. That doesn't mean doormat. That means servant. And unless, ladies, you think it's a bad thing to be a servant, understand that God himself is called the helper of Israel. And that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And when he wanted to show his followers, his disciples, the difference that his life would make in their lives, he took a towel and a basin and got on his hands and knees and began to wash the feet of his disciples. In other words, once you know Jesus Christ, this verse says, wives, be Christ-like with your husbands. Have a, an attitude that you also see in Jesus Christ who though he had every right and every prerogative, though he had all power and authority, though he had all the glory, yet emptied himself and became a servant, obedient unto death. And so once you understand that, then Jesus makes a big difference in your life. Paul goes on to say the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now you're understanding that 
marriage is a reflection of God's design for, the, for, the, for uh, our salvation. That the church as the body of Christ is reflected in the marriage relationship. Later on he'll talk about the husband's ahead of the wife. And we are members of the body of Christ, and so as we are members of the body of Christ, there's a union there. So too the husband and the wife have a oneness of flesh. Paul says this is a profound mystery. I couldn't explain it to you in a million years. When we get to heaven, we'll have all eternity to keep dipping down deeper and deeper and deeper into this profound mystery. But here it is for right now. When a believer is married, especially two believers in Jesus Christ wed to one another, this is a reflection of what God has done for the church in Jesus Christ. And so wives, reflect that profound reality and how you are married to your husband. See, suddenly it's not just you know, who's, who's uh, in charge, but it's a question of who should get the glory and who should be praised in the marriage relationship. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. This is the goal. That's, that's God's design for marriage, that your marriage would be a reflection of God's glory. Now that's a different way to look at marriage. You know, uh, sometimes your husband will irritate you. Happened once. Sometimes he's impossible. Sometimes he's irrational. Sometimes he behaves like a child. Amen? Did you say that? <laughs> but wives, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a believer in the Lord Jesus, submit your life to your husband. And don't view him as an intrusion into who you are, the way the world would view a marriage. But view him as the God-ordained avenue whereby you will glorify the Father in the marriage, in the home. This is the ideal that is set before us. Unless you think that um, uh, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about because after all, he, you know, he doesn't understand my marriage and he doesn't know the, the guy I'm married to. He was writing to women who by and large were in arranged marriages. These women by and large had not had a chance to choose to whom they were married. Ladies, at least most of you had a, had a choice. You didn't do so hot, but now live with it. Okay. <laughs> Glorify the Father. But then he says to the husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If the wife is to submit herself, the husband is to die. If she is to use her resources and talents for the welfare of the home, he is to die for the sake 
of the home. He is walking point in front of the family, in front of the marriage. A godly Christian husband will take all the, the, the attacks and the, and, the, uh, and the assault of the world against the home. The husband will, will suffer the pain first. He will go the extra mile. He will do what it takes to protect his home from the attack of the evil one. The husband will die for the sake of the home, and he will die for the sake of his wife. Because Christ died for us. You know, and think about it. When did Christ die for us? When we were lovely and beautiful? When we'd gotten enough rest and when we were in a good mood? Did Christ die for us when we had done everything right and everything around the house was perfect and we had, had been cheerful and happy and we had our makeup on and our hair done and we had dressed nicely and greeted you at the door with pearls and a... I don't know, I'm, I'm having a, a June Cleaver image in my mind right now. Christ died for us when we were ugly and pitiful and selfish and mean and despiteful because God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christian husbands, die for your wife. Give up your life for her. You see, a lot of, lot of, this doesn't make sense to the world. Again, the world looks at this and says, ah, the husband's, he's, he's going to be in charge. He's, he's going to be a little potentate in the home. He can, he'll just tell her what to do and she has to do it. A, it doesn't work. Tried it. And <laughs> B, that's not what the scripture says. You see, the Pharisees were looking for a Messiah who would come with a crown and a sword and a scepter. The Pharisees were looking for a Messiah who would come in great authority and great power, sitting upon a throne. And so they missed the Messiah who came with but a towel and a basin hanging on a cross. And there are too many men who want to be the kingly Messiah in their home where they speak and everybody trembles and they have a whim and everybody has to satisfy it. Christian husbands, if you follow Jesus, here's what your marriage will look like. You will serve your wife and you will die for her and you will sacrifice for her and it will be your greatest delight and your greatest joy that at the end of the day, all of your energy and all of your strength and all of your talents have been spent for the sake of bringing her the joy of knowing Christ better. That you might present her before God's throne, holy and blameless and righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ because you brought Jesus to her every day of the marriage. That's a Christian husband. I mean, this just works out in very simple ways. I remind you that Scripture really says the husband comes first and he should be first. Men, make sure you're first in your marriage. The very first to say, I'm sorry. The very first. Because that moment comes when you're sitting in your easy chair and you're just grousing. I, I used to use the illustration of reading the newspaper, but you're thumbing through your, 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 your iPod and, and you're, you're channel surfing, you know, and it is a, it's, you know, it's like you know, 
flashbulbs going off as you're, cha you're changing channels faster than the, 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 the screen can scan the pixels. I mean, that, that's how mad you are at her. Because she's been unreasonable and impossible, and she's done that thing that she always does. And you've asked her not to do it, and she did it anyway. And you told her she did it, and she had the nerve, the audacity to get mad at you when she was wrong, and you know she's wrong. Every jury in the land would agree with me. <laughs> now, husbands, you come first. You're the first to say I'm sorry because you've reached that impasse where someone has to make the first move. And God, in great kindness and mercy towards you, made the first move in Jesus Christ. And God, when you were wrong and spiteful, when you had said mean and ugly things to him, he sent his son to die in your place. And you want to be first in your home, be like Jesus. And so you're the first to get up and go into the next room. And you say, dear, sweetheart, I'm sorry. And she turns to you and she says, sorry, you don't know what sorry is. You're the sorriest person I've ever seen. Well, I'll show you sorry. And she dresses you up one side and down the other and you stalk out of the room and you sit down in your chair and you're thinking to yourself, I tried, I honestly tried, I apologize. How many times did Jesus Christ have to come to you before you said, yes, and I'm sorry for my sins? How many times... Did the Holy Spirit have to work on your heart before you responded? Man, you want to be first in your home. You get up out of the chair again and you go back and you go back and you go back. Until the channel of communication and love and affection is opened again. You want to be first, men? as a Christian, as a follower in Christ. You see, because the issue, one is the issue of how to have a happy marriage. One is the issue of communication, reconciliation, forgiveness, clearing the channels. All, you know, all that's there. But I'll tell you what's there more than, you, than we suspect. And that is this. The question of the glory of God in Christ Jesus is there in your home. And men, if you're going to be the head of your house, and I believe the Bible says you are, bring the glory of God in Christ Jesus into your home. Every day, every moment, every room of it. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might present her holy and spotless and blame, blameless, an unblemished offering to God. This, by the way, is an amazing thing. Now, if you, if you look on to uh, verse 31... Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the, um, uh, the summarization of the creation account where God creates man, says it's not good for a man to be alone, creates the woman. He creates Ish, he creates Isha, that's the Hebrew for it, the man, the woman, and uh, he brings them together and he says, because I've created you this way, you are to come together and to be one flesh 
together. Now, earlier on, the interesting thing is in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, when God creates man in his own image, male and female created he them, and so men and women together, yeah. equally image of God, all that, that's the way God designed it. But you know what the first thing he says to them after God creates them in Genesis chapter 1? Very first commandment. Be fruitful and multiply. I thought he'd be more spiritual than that. He said, no, be fruitful and multiply. Have children. For all of its dynamics, everything that marriage is, and, and it's, 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 it's so many things, but ultimately the home is to be the place where children grow in safety and nurture. It's a place for growing children. And even the home that has never had children or the children have left the home, yet that marriage by observing the commandments of God upholds the structure of home and the structure of family so that children will be safe in the family. The world doesn't understand this. The world thinks that marriage is about being happy. The world thinks that you are married so long as we both shall love each other, but you know, we fall in, we fall out of love, and if that happens, then well, we just move on to better things. The world thinks that children are so resilient that you can tear them apart and confuse the stew out of them so they don't know where their bedroom is, they don't know which toothbrush they're using on which weekend, and they've forgotten which collection of stuffed bears are theirs in what room of what house, and they're just terribly confused, and we say things like, children are resilient, it's important that I be happy. Now I understand all, you know, all the arguments about broken marriages, etc., etc. We're not going into the detail of that. I'm just giving you God's design. This is God's intention. That a man and a woman would come together in marriage and they would become one flesh and the children that result from that union would be cared for by a mother and a father. Now, Paul goes on to say, what is it? Verse 32, this mystery is profound. That a marriage reflects the very character and nature and holiness of God as the one who creates and brings life into the world. And that this marriage reflects the relationship of God the Son, Jesus Christ, with his church, his body. See, now marriage isn't about us. It's really about the glory of God and Jesus Christ. That's why the world doesn't understand it. Won't spend a bit of time on it, but this is why the world doesn't understand how we feel and what we believe about so-called same-sex marriage. Because there's a design that God has, and it goes much deeper than whom do I love and am I happy. It goes much deeper than that. Much, much deeper. It says this mystery is profound. And so he has brought us together for his glory. Now, um, the, 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 the point I want to make about that for a discipleship is that um, this is just one example of a human relationship, a situation in which we live being transformed by the fact that we follow Jesus. Those who don't follow Jesus, don't be surprised, they don't agree with you. They're not going to see it that way. But when you follow Jesus, here's where it leads you to the profound mystery of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, his love for us and his love for the church.
It's just one illustration. Let me give you another example. It's in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Wow, that's easy enough. Everybody believes that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then Paul goes on to say, and this matter of obedience, because teaching obedience to children is a primary task of parents. It's a primary task to, to bring uh, children to understand what it is to be under the authority other than themselves. Children grow. First, they learn the authority that comes from parents. Then they, they, they learn an authority that comes uh, from the society around them. Ultimately, they have to yield to the authority of their own conscience. But most of all, children need to know how to yield to the authority of God. And if they have not learned how to yield to the authority of parents, they have a very hard time knowing what it means to yield to the authority of their Heavenly Father. If they cannot have enough self-control taught by the external control of parents that grows into an internal control of the conscience, if they haven't learned that lesson, then, then it's very difficult for them to learn the lesson of surrender to the control of the Holy Spirit within them. You see how critical it is now. It's not just, you know, have your children obey so that they can do marvelous tricks at Thanksgiving, uh, you know, coming when you snap your fingers and things like that. That was always worth a laugh. Um, but it is rather a matter of raising these children up so that they know how to know their Father in heaven through Jesus Christ. Right? So children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then he quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your, and your mother. By the way, this is the first commandment that has a promise. All the other commandments don't have a promise connected to them, but this one has a promise. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. What land? The promised land. The inheritance. The land that, that God had promised to Abraham and he said to Israel as he brought them out of Egypt, I'm going to show you this land. I'm going to bring you to it through the whole Exodus thing. This was the goal all along. And the scripture says that you obey your parents, honor your father and your mother so that you don't lose out this blessing of God. That your life doesn't fall apart as you drift away from God's design for the home and for the family relationship. And so children, obey your parents. And then in verse uh, 4, fathers, you can read that parents as well. well let's just pick on dads. Fathers, uh, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't be picking at them all the time. I mean, what big deal is it when you as a grown adult, grown in quotes, grown adult can find something wrong with a child? You know, it's not that hard to do. You know, what's the big deal that you know how to, to yell at a kid? That you know how to make him feel bad? That you can squash his self-esteem? That you can, you can just so obliterate any, any sense of competency that he has? Do you know the difference between a dad who's constantly telling his son what you cannot do? You're throwing the ball wrong. You're catching it wrong. You're, you're, not, you're not making the cuts correctly. You're not, you're not defending right. I'm there because I'm seeing it on, on, at, at Upward Basketball. I see the dads on the sidelines, and, and you can tell they just want to grab their sons by, by the collar and just say, hey, look, you're not defending right. Give him a break. He's six years old. 
The difference between that dad and the dad who every night when his little boy is asleep bends over and whispers in his ear, you're okay in my book. You're okay in my book. And there's nothing you can't do. And you know, son, For as long as you can hear my voice, you will be safe with me. Do you know the difference that makes in a little boy's life, dads? And so why is it that you're watching TV when he needs a dad to put him to bed? You know. I speak more from the experience of the failure than the success. But that's the ideal. That, that, I think, is what Paul is setting before us. Dads, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. See, that's the goal, is that our children would know Christ, that they would be holy in their living, sold out to Christ. You see, dads, when, when you have a, a child in your home, this is your opportunity to glorify your Father in heaven by becoming an avenue, a channel, the, the means whereby the grace of God flows through your life into the life of your children so that when one day someone tells them, you know, God loves you, he's your Father in heaven, they can say, I understand what that means because I have a Father on earth who loves me. I understand what grace is because my dad has given to me time and time and time again his love and his affection and his resources for me. I understand this thing about my father in heaven because I see it lived out in a father on earth. You see, when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how you raise children is a whole different ball game. It's not just a matter of extracting a few principles about how to guide children to grow and mature in the stages of life as they accomplish the various tasks of the various ages. You know, that developmental psychology thing, that's, that's fine. But it's beyond just a principle. It is how do I live out Jesus before my children so that they see him in me I, I, I don't know why, but I, I just feel like, dads, you really need to hear this. How do I live out Jesus in my life so that my children think Jesus is so wonderful and so beautiful and so attractive that my sons and my daughters fall in love with him and want to serve him too? All the lectures in the world will not replace the living presentation of the gospel to your children. That's the difference that being a follower of Christ makes. Very quickly, very quickly. Verses uh, 5 to 8. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm looking at a translation that says slaves. Bondservant might, might also be the word. Um, slavery was, was uh, rampant in the ancient world in the first century. Slavery was basically how you ran the economy 
Uh, if you needed to borrow money, you used yourself as collateral, you would sell yourself into slavery for a certain period of time. We might call that indentured servitude. Uh, there were about, I, I think it was five to seven levels of slavery, uh, all the way from a professional slave, you were a doctor, a lawyer, an art, uh, artisan, an artist of, of some sort, and, and you worked in a household to bring in income, all the way down to chattel slavery, which, uh, which was the experience of our nation, uh, where you were just uh, a, a piece of property. Right. And, and the ancient world knew all of those. Uh, let us understand that slavery is still among us. There are people in the world today who are enslaved, and oh, let us pray for them. And let us give to those who work for their freedom, because it is an ugly, ugly blight on human history. So I'm not downplaying the severity and the rank sin of slavery. But Paul says, you know, it's unjust, it's unfair, but when you get there, here's what's happened, slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart and rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he receives back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, the world doesn't understand that. The world points to that, and, and you know this. The world likes to say, oh, look at this, the Bible supports slavery. You Christians are, are, are pro-slavery. Nothing of the kind. Nothing of the kind. What Paul is saying is, you're in a situation that has the rankest of wrong attached to it. Glorify Christ. You are in a situation in which you are seeing sin, not just as some abstract concept, but you're seeing sin visited upon you and forced upon you. You're, you're, you're in a situation where, where sin is the dominating uh, reality going on there. Glorify Christ. Do not give in to the uh, very real human temptation for bitterness, anger, revenge, spitefulness. Some of you are government workers, you need to hear this. Do not give in to the notion that because he is wrong, I can be wrong too. Because you don't follow that earthly master, you follow a heavenly master. And your master in heaven is wonderfully beautiful and wonderfully righteous and just. And he is not blind and unaware of what you are doing. Offer to him the fruit of a heart that is sold out on Christ and loves him. See, it transforms the relationship, transforms how you get through it. Now, lest you think that the Bible actually supports slavery, I'm going to read to you the verse that kills slavery. We'll kill it every time. It's in verse 9. Now remember, he's just said, you know, if you're on the slave side of the equation, the bondservant side of the equation, I want you to do service, I want you to do it as if you were serving the Lord, and I want you to work and be a good worker. That's what he's just said, basically. Then he says, masters, do the same to them. What did he just tell them to do? He said to them, we want you to serve for the glory of God, your master. Now he's saying to the master, what do you do to your slave? You serve your slave to the glory of God. That wipes out slavery. You just can't have the institution of slavery once the Bible tells you, master, you're on the same level 
as that bond servant, as that slave. You have a master. He has a master. It's the same master. You cannot tell this guy that he is less human, has fewer rights, doesn't belong in the human race. You cannot say that to him because your task as a master is to serve him. Some of you have managerial responsibility. Some of you uh, have, a, have a case where you have people working for you or under you. And the world says, here's how you do it. You tell them what's what. You tell them it's my way or the highway. You go to people and you just make their life miserable until they uh, kowtow to you and do what you tell them to do. Here's what Christ says. You go and you serve them. You ask yourself in prayer and you ask them, how can I make your life more fulfilling and more worthwhile? Not as a, as a way of uh, subsidizing bad behavior, but as a way of encouraging good behavior. How can I work in your life that you would grow as a human being because that's what God wants for you and I want you to come to know the God who loves me and it transforms how you manage an office or manage a factory or manage anything so he says masters you do the same stop your threatening see that's the world's idea you know just yell at people knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. You don't get to claim special status. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so again, a follower of Christ has his work situation, the employment situation, transformed for the glory of God. Totally transformed. Again, we could, we could uh, you know, extract managerial principles and, and you know, things like that from this. But the heart of it is this, if you know Jesus, the way you work is going to be different. And why you work is going to be different. Absolutely different. So that's, that's, uh, that's what I wanted to suggest to you this morning, is that when you follow Jesus Christ, suddenly everything, every relationship, every place where you are, everything you do is, is transformed. Because now we must honor him. And if some action, some idea, some attitude will not glorify Christ, then I need to get rid of it. And if there are things that I know I ought to do that will glorify Christ, I need to do those things. I need to be a part of that. Now, is this hard? Of course it's hard. It, is it impossible? Of course it's impossible. Can you do it? Of course you can do it, because God has sent us his Holy Spirit, the very power of God, the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Christ from the dead is given to every believer in Jesus Christ that we might live obedient lives for his glory. So we follow Jesus to lift him up, to honor him, to exalt him, to praise him, to glorify him in all that we say. And all that we do, our lives transformed by the power of following Jesus. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? And Father, what an incredible privilege it is to serve a risen Lord who is never absent from our lives, even when our actions and attitudes leave him out. 
How tremendous it is to know the transforming power of the Holy Spirit for those of us who believe, who have come to trust in your grace for us in Christ. Father, we want to please you with our lives. And we want everything around us, everything in us, every relationship, every situation to be useful in bringing you praise and honor and glory. Grant to us the ministry of the Holy Spirit so we might follow Jesus in the power and the wisdom of the cross. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. As we sing our final hymn together, and the Holy Spirit works in your heart and prompts you to a decision for Christ, respond quickly, respond obediently, and share that with the body of Christ. As well.